0: From KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. For three years, the Washington Post fought a legal battle to obtain documents of hundreds of interviews with experts and government officials about the U.S.'s longest war still being fought in Afghanistan. The interviews were conducted by a little-known watchdog group called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Analyzing the documents in great detail, journalist Craig Whitlock and his colleagues published a multi-part story that they're calling the Afghanistan Papers. The expose confirms what critics had been asserting for nearly two decades that there is no clearly defined goal or end point to the war to help determine when to stop fighting, and that our efforts have been futile at best and deeply destructive at worst. It also shows that officials have been lying about the war for years, and that our billions of dollars spent there have little to show for it. Before we turn to our guest expert, I want to play a short clip of a video produced by the Washington Post in its battle to obtain the documents.
1: These documents, these first-hand interviews from people who were involved, and yet this material had been suppressed for so long, this was an original way to tell the story of all the failures in Afghanistan. We're we're basically fighting the wrong way. We just left the Afghans with Assad because we didn't know how the story was going to end. We are not really here to win. In the fall of 2016, General Michael Flynn, who at that time was a retired U.S. general and intelligence director at the Pentagon, was working with Donald Trump on his campaign, and he was in the headlines quite a bit. America first. America first. And we'd heard there had been an interview done, a long interview done, with Michael Flynn about the war in Afghanistan, and that this interview had been conducted by an obscure government agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Since Flynn was in the news lot, we wanted to take a look at that interview, and so then we had to file a Freedom Information Act request, and this dragged on for weeks, and Trump won the election, and Trump was president. Now, Flynn was his national security advisor in the White House. Good afternoon, everyone. And ultimately, they denied us the interview. They said it wasn't a public record. So uh, the Post had to file a lawsuit in federal court to obtain it. Ambassadors, you know, local, down at the, uh, you know, down at the local level. Everybody did a great job. We're all doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing such a great job, why, why does it feel like we've, we're losing? Uh, Michael Flynn like- was you know, just unsparing in his criticism of how the war was going. Then we found out that Flynn was only one of hundreds of people Who had been interviewed by this inspector general for Afghanistan over the previous few years.
0: And that's an excerpt of a video that the Washington Post created around the story that it has published in multiple parts called the Afghanistan Papers. Joining me to examine them is Matthew Ho, member of the advisory boards of Exposed Facts, Veterans for Peace, and World Beyond War. In 2009, he resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war there by the Obama administration. Welcome to the program, Matthew.
2: Hi, Sonali, thank you for having me on.
0: I imagine that like me, you poured through these Afghanistan papers and thought, I remember when I warned against that. Oh yes, that was predictable. Um, and we knew that Rumsfeld was lying, etc." Did this set of um, documents overall, of course there are some revelations in the details, but overall, revealed to you that you and other critics of the war have been right for nearly two decades, for the entire, almost entire time it's been fought?
2: You know, I don't think um, any of us needed reassuring, uh, particularly in light of the fact, not just in Afghanistan, but what we've seen happen in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, Somalia, all throughout, say, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that these wars are not just immoral and illegal, but they're counterproductive. And so I think that context has always reassured, I think, folks like myself and then you who, you know, you've been speaking about this war much longer than I have. And I have not met any of us, Sonali, who have been speaking against the war, um, who are expressing joy or some kind of affirmation or, hey, you know, look, we were right. I think there's just a general sadness among all of us because we know the human cost in this. We know the suffering not just for uh, the, uh, the Americans and their families and their, their, their neighbors who were involved in these wars, but for the Afghan people who have just been through 40 some odd years of unrelenting suffering that has no end in sight, as well as to, again, you know, put this in the larger context, all the people, the tens of millions of people who have suffered from American wars, uh, not just for these last two decades, but you know, going back. Uh, uh, you know, really, you could t- you can make a straight line back from these wars all the way back through, of course, uh, uh, before the founding of the republic, the the, the the wars against Native Americans, the institution of slavery, the doctrine of discovery, et cetera. All that ties in together. And so I think what what for folks like myself, there's sadness, not uh, any type of, uh, you know, triumph
0: One of the uh, critical graphics in the Washington Post's coverage was the toll of the war, which I think has to be central to any discussion around this longest war, tens of thousands Thousands, hundreds of thousands of human beings have died. So, the graphic which we've shown for our TV audience shows that since 2001, an estimated 157,000 people have been killed in the war in Afghanistan. That includes 43,000 Afghan civilians, 64,000 and some Afghan security forces, 42,000 Taliban fighters and other insurgents. And that includes 3,814 U.S. contractors, 2,300 U.S. military personnel. uh, 1145 NATO and coalition troops, 67 journalists and media workers, 424 humanitarian aid workers so here's this war that has been claiming so many lives and although you and i and other critics of the war knew that officials were lying about the war this set of documents proves it right so they told when they thought that their words were not going to become public they told this watchdog group the special inspector general for afghanistan reconstruction sigar they told in very candid terms that we didn't know what we were doing in afghanistan and then publicly they claimed progress i mean that's shocking
2: yeah. yeah you know these men first of all these men and women should not be considered whistleblowers in any sense of the fashion that you would ascribe to say a chelsea manning or an edward snowden or a thomas drake uh, these are men and women who as you said sonali thought that their words that their their their, their truthful words we're not ever going to see uh, the public eye. Um, and if you've noticed, if people have looked through the report and you've seen where the post actually spoke to some of these men and women who uh, who are uh, documented in these reports, almost all of them, with the exception of one that I found, Barney Rubin, who has consistently spoken out against the war, uh, you know, for the last you know eight or nine years at least, um, all of them. Try and walk back or try and squirm out of it or say, I don't recall saying that or, you know, or try and justify their comments. So what I think that shows to people is that this type of of lying, this type of malfeasance is institutionalized. And we have seen, uh, there's a book out by a West Point professor uh, currently right now. There is uh, There have been reports put out by the various armed services, including a major one in either 2010 or 2011 by the Army War College about the institutionalization of lying in the military as a way to one, show loyalty, and then of course, two, to advance advancement and secure uh, you know a, a profitable career for yourself. Um, so I, I think that demonstrates uh, the, 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 you know, systematic and consistent lying demonstrates that, you know, th- this, this way of war, the, 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 the way of violence has to be propped up by lying because it can only end in ruin. There, there's no, I mean, and we know this going back to, uh, you know, the Greeks wrote about this. This is in the pages of the Bible. I mean, this is certainly not new human wisdom. But it certainly is uh, uh, wisdom that we have as a nation and as a people uh, in our institutions, at least, have forgotten. No, to Go
0: ahead.
2: Oh, I was going to say I want to say one thing about the human cost. The numbers that you see in the Washington Post that you just recited, uh, Sonali, as unbelievable as they are, those should be only be looked at as the bare minimum. If you look in, at what say like a, a journalist like Jonathan Steele writes about um, in his book. Uh, from a number of years ago, or his reporting from early in the war there in the early 2000s, you see that the number of, and, and from what I saw too being there, the number of Afghan civilian dead is a bare minimum. And the United Nations in its reporting says that. Uh, I would say, based upon my experience in both Iraq and Afghanistan, that whenever uh, a U.S. helicopter or U.S. Marines or soldiers kill civilians, we only hear about that one out of five times, or one out of six times, possibly. So much of the killing in these wars go unreported, as well as the fact that the war takes place in the rural Muslim population who is distrustful of the government, distrustful of the foreign occupation, buries their dead quickly in in in, in uh, observance of religious and cultural rights. Um, and then too, it doesn't take into account uh, so we don't know what the actual numbers are. then it, it doesn't take into account things such as, you know, the Afghan refugees are the second largest refugee group in the world amongst the la- world's largest refugee crisis since the Second World War. So, how many of these people have died while trying to get to safety into sanctuary? How many of them are lying dead in the mountain pass or at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea right now? And then, finally, for the American uh, uh, casualties, the rates of suicide are not in there. Uh, you know, so what we know from the s- figures of suicide is that more Iraq and Afghan veterans have killed themselves since coming home than were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. If you're a tw- if you're a, a Iraq and Afghan veteran in your 20s, you have a rate of suicide six times higher than that of your civilian peers, who are your same age and same sex, so we, when we look at those numbers, we have to understand them as a bare minimum that we're just—you know—that's the tip of the proverbial iceberg right. in the, terms of the the human cost in these wars. It's a
0: conservative uh, estimate, and and very likely a huge underestimate. Um, in examining the Afghanistan papers, which I assume was named to reflect the Pentagon papers about the Vietnam War that Daniel Ellsberg had. Um, revealed as a whistleblower. In in looking at these, uh, a clear um, distinction is drawn between the Bush administration strategy in the Afghanistan war and the Obama administration strategy. You resigned from the State Department over Obama's escalation of the war. And I'm wondering if you can share, just from looking at these documents and seeing the internal assessments, how uh, you view what Obama did—he basically threw troops and a lot of money, and then created this sort of artificial timeline so that the Taliban knew just to wait it out um, at, at this at this war—and it was clearly a wrong strategy, just from a pro-war perspective, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, if I was still in the in the military and I was still trying to like win victories for the empire you know i would not have you know you, the, the 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 strategy itself goes went against everything that we know about the war about the populace about the people and about the way of american war and what we're doing i used to get asked a lot what are the similarities between iraq and afghanistan and this is when president obama's surge was happening in afghanistan and at first i would fall into that trap and be like well you know you know in, in trying to to parse the differences And then I realized, you know what, it doesn't matter because the United States military is waging war against a people in both places and the outcome is going to be the same. It's going to be suffering and it's going to be absolute uh, counterproductive uh, a method of recruiting for those people that we are calling our enemies, because what you're doing is, is by killing their fem- friends and family, killing their neighbors, you're just making their cause more worthwhile and more of a purpose-driven cause. Um, what I saw there, because uh, I had done two deployments to uh, Iraq and also have worked at the Pentagon, the State Department on war policy, uh, during these wars before I got to Afghanistan in 2009 with the State Department was that the Obama administration was no different than the Bush administration. They claimed they were, um, they, they claimed that, you know, they were just inherently better because they were Democrats versus Republicans. But the reality was, was that the Afghanistan war was a way for the Democrats to prove that they were a better, uh, 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 they had a better commander in chief that they were better at winning wars, that they were just as tough as the Republicans. Um, And that really comes down to why did this war, uh, why was it just not extended by President Obama, but why was it escalated? When he comes into office, we have about 30,000 US forces in Afghanistan. By the end of his first year, there's 100,000 US forces there. He's added 100,000 more contractors and 40,000 more NATO troops. I mean, so this wasn't a minor surge of 30,000 as is often misrepresented. This was a massive increase of 250,000 personnel to try and win this war to prove victory uh, for the United States president. And it was just one, a colossal failure, but two, to go back to your point, which I I don't think we could ever uh, 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 spend too much time talking about, is just more and more suffering for the Afghan people.
0: Now, the other huge aspect of this was the amount of money that was spent on the war uh, and in the war, as part of the war, there's several aspects that you alluded to it earlier. The Washington Post has a whole section on what that money did. Um, It was about a trillion dollars of U.S. taxpayers' money. That's my money, your money, every American taxpayers' money was poured into Afghanistan. Far more money than the entire Marshall Plan, money that could could have actually done some good in Afghanistan if it was put into the right places or used in the right way, but instead so much of it went into the to fueling corruption. Um, one of the things that just shocked me and really angered me, just a tiny little fact, that was one of the new things that came out of this uh, Afghanistan papers, Abdul Rashid Dostam, one of the most notorious Afghan warlords, you know, documented mass killer, was receiving $100,000 of US taxpayer money per month to behave himself. And of course he became one of the two vice presidents in the nation as well, just shocking. That's $100,000 of money that came from my pocket and your pocket and the pocket of every American taxpayer going into mass killers by way of the US government.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean you can't you, you can't underestimate that term of mass killers. These men that we put and kept in power are as equally as bad as a Taliban. That is one thing that was suppressed. One thing that was uh, just not allowed really to be spoken about um, in 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 u s. discourse uh, uh, about the war for the last uh, you know eighteen years is that the people that we put in power w- were the people who killed tens and tens of thousands of their fellow Afghan citizens by shelling Kabul. These are the people who committed mass human rights atrocities. These are the people actually, a lot of people believe that the Taliban brought the burqa to Kabul. No, the burqa was brought to Kabul by the very men that we put back into power. I would refer people to the Cost of War Project at Brown University. Um, They have done really great work on how much this war is actually gonna cost you know, at the end of our lives, because you know, I, I, I'm a 100 percent disabled veteran. I get all my health care for uh, you know, f- through the, the Veterans Administration, and I have to get a lot of health care to take care of my problems stemming from these wars, both physical and mental. And so you have to pay for me until the end of my life. It doesn't end until then. And, and then there's all other costs that, that roll into it. But what they say at Brown University and other studies at Harvard and other places have confirmed this is that the war will cost at least six trillion dollars by the time it's all said and done. Six trillion dollars of that. What the most incredible number uh, is within it is that at least one trillion of that will just be simply in debt and interest payments. Wow. So. It's a one trillion this war will is eventually going to be just a one trillion dollar profit for the banks. Oh, there's so much that 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 plays into all of this that that ties into it. Um, the, the, the shooting that happened in Pensacola, yeah, uh, where that 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 aviation uh, uh, student from Saudi Arabia, you know killed three people. He said, you know that he is doing this not because he hates our freedom, but because uh you know of our of the united states bombing and killing of people and it's what they all say all these people who conduct these attacks against americans uh, the the guy in orlando the, the 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 guy who tried to blow up times square uh those two uh young men in boston none of them say convert or die they all say stop bombing my people stop killing muslim people that's what they keep saying mm-hmm. and that just gets. That that doesn't even get recognized. It's 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 because they called us a nation of evil. Like they're they have some type of uh, uh, imbalance in their understanding of, of of good and bad, what's morally right and what's morally wrong. Um, but also too, as you said, with the NDAA, yeah, for you know members of Congress to express outrage and then turn around and immediately give this organization that has so systemically lied, not just about this, but about Iraq and about Libya, you know, and, and, and everything else, um, to go around and turn around and give them 735 or $38 billion or whatever the final number was is just, I mean, I, I think everyone thinks of that, that famous scene in Casablanca, you know, where the police captain comes in and he says, I'm shocked gambling is going on here and then the, the the waiter comes up and says, Here are your winnings, sir. You know, I mean it, it's that type of literally the 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 one hand does not know what the other hand is mm-hmm. doing in terms of members of Congress, because how in your right mind could you say you're, one, first of all, say that you didn't know that things were going badly in Afghanistan, and this is the first you learned that the US government and its military might be lying about something, and two, then turn around and give them $738 billion. When, as you say, Sonali, there is, I mean, the, the, hey, as people say all the time as a tagline, you know, Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water.
0: Well, finally, Matthew, um, although I was very impressed by the work that The Washington Post reporters did in putting this information out there, and the legal battle they waged to obtain the uh, secret interviews conducted by the Inspector General for Reconstruction in Afghanistan, although all of that was very impressive, the US media by and large, the corporate media in particular, really is in part to blame for these wars continuing. Don't you agree? They're, they're, because critics of the war ha- were not surprised by what was revealed. Because if you scratch the surface of official rhetoric, the evidence is there, if you're, especially if you're paying attention to what's actually happening on the ground. Do you um, feel that the media could have done so much more over these past 18 years?
2: Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's yeah, I think it's one of those things that makes me the angriest. Is that the post is now trying to wear almost like a cloak of 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 being the hero? I imagine this is going to be their first entry in you know submission submission for next year's Pulitzer Prize awards, right? You know, um, I'm particularly you know you get aggrieved at this because you see the lack of adversarial journalism that has gone on for so long. Um, in the Post, in the New York Times. Um, you know, the USA Today has actually not been too bad, I've found over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but for the most part, and then certainly the news channels CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, very little one uh, a, a chance for anyone who doesn't speak uh, in lockstep with the Pentagon to get on these channels. Um, and two, so very often, particularly say with the post and the times, um, and as well to the associated press and Reuters, you know, um, to, to go and just give the benefit of the doubt to the military and to print, uh, unnamed sources, anonymous sources over and over and over again, um, without any type of, uh, without any type of, of, of attempt to fact check or to again play the role of adversarial journalist. Um, And I know you you know this, if you said something to, you know, and it's not just uh, the major newspapers, it's also major magazines like the Atlantic or Time Magazine or or whoever, um, you you get, you, you know, someone like yourself, if they even deign to read what you sent, they're gonna fact check you you know, your 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 eyes and fingertips are going to believe by the time you're done. You know, qualifying everything you said, but you see all the time they they publish things from men like General Petraeus or General McChrystal or or you know, uh, without any source, without any attempt to speak to anyone who might think differently, and of course, without any ever ever clarifying or bringing up, hey, he's been wrong the last fifty or a hundred times he's spoken. So, yeah, I think that is probably the, the the one thing where I'm really upset about and really emotional about with this because the rest of it is, as you know, we said earlier, you know, there's no joy in, in saying, you know, I told you so. Yeah.
0: Matthew, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for all the work you've done over the years. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sonali. My guest has been Matthew Ho. He's a member of the advisory boards of Exposed Facts, Veterans for Peace, and World Beyond War. In 2009, he resigned his position with the U.S. State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war there by the Obama administration. We've been discussing the Washington Post's Afghanistan papers. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at RisingUp at Sonali.com, where you can sign up for our new newsletter, subscribe to our video channel on Vimeo, and find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify.